Am I doing what I most love to do? That's a very big question uh, to is. contemplate. And I think many, many people don't contemplate that on a daily basis. So one of the biggest, toughest transitions for anybody to make is to transition out of your excellence zone where you're doing stuff you're good at and usually better at than most people and letting go of some of those things to jump into your genius sure. zone. Hi, it's Inka. So happy to have you here. This podcast is all about science-based practical tools for everyday wellness, brain and mental health, self-care, productivity, longevity, and all that inspires us in health and wellness right now. I get that your time is so valuable, so I'm packing these episodes with actionable tools, real insights, and the latest in science with my expert guests. Stay updated on new episodes by subscribing to YouTube, Spotify, and or Apple. Okay, I have a real treat for you guys. If you're ready to start living at your greatest potential, this episode is going to blow your mind. I'm speaking with Dr. Gay Hendricks, a world-famous psychologist, renewed author, speaker, and teacher in the field of personal growth. He's dedicated his life to helping people discover their true potential and live their best lives. We'll talk about what it means to take the big leap, what it means to step outside of your comfort zone and pursue your deepest desires. We'll cover the common fears and obstacles that holds us back, as well as the practical strategies and tools we can use to break through those barriers and create a life of abundance, joy, dream job, and purpose. Dr. Hendricks is a true visionary who embodies the qualities of authenticity, courage, and wisdom, and I'm so excited to have him share his insights with us today. And before we get into it, I have a tiny request. If you like this episode and the podcast, it would mean so much to me if you could leave a five-star review for it in Spotify or Apple or whichever platform you use to listen to it. It helps with the ranking of the podcast and helps other people find it as well. Okay, with that said, sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. Dr. Gay Hendricks, thank you so much for giving me the honor to interview today. So you've authored 40 books, you're leading seminars, you're inspiring people, your book, Big Leap, has combined 20,000 reviews on Goodreads and Amazon with an average of 4.5 uh, stars. Mm -hmm. So your message really transformed people. And it definitely did that to me. You could say that you have found your zone of genius. It's actually a concept that you came up with. So that's the thing that seems to be transforming many people's lives, especially from the book, Big Leap. So can you tell us what is the zone of genius? Yes, the zone of genius is when you are doing what you most love to do and what makes your biggest contribution to other people at the same time. So each of us has within us something or things that we absolutely love to do. And when you're doing them, time disappears. You don't think about time. It's like when you were playing, when you were a child. You weren't thinking, oh, I've got to finish this play time by 10.15. You were just playing. And that's a quality that you get into in your genius zone. Um, by the way, uh, my latest book, The Genius Zone, is a sequel to The Big Leap. Uh, so it kind of goes uh, one step further. So I want to throw in a few concepts from that book as well as um, The Big Leap. Uh, but the main thing, the main thing to keep in, in mind when you're going in search of your genius is, is this something I really love to do? That's a key to it, because when you're doing that, 
then you're in that timeless space of wonder and creativity. You're not in the TikTok world of having to meet schedules and that kind of thing. Those are important, but all of us need time to expand into our genius zone, in my view, on a daily basis. Otherwise, you get rusty, and rust is not good in the world of genius. So you want to keep reinventing yourself all the time by always asking, am I doing what I most love to do? That's a good way to judge how well your life is going. Am I doing what I most love to do? That's a very big question uh, to is. contemplate. And I think many, many people don't contemplate that on a daily basis. Um, for you, it was not always like that. You weren't always doing what you are doing now. How did you find your zone of genius? Oh, well, I have to roll the clock back 50 years because, or more than 50 years now, But something happened to me in the year of 1969 that changed my whole world. And uh, you weren't around in 1969, but it was a time of great political ferment like today. And uh, there were demonstrations and that kind of thing. Um, at the time, I was 22 years old and I had created a life where I was absolutely miserable most of the time. I had, um, well, for starters, I was very obese. I'd suffered from childhood obesity and I, I remained obese up until this year of 1969. And so I was carrying a lot of extra weight. I also smoked cigarettes heavily. I was smoking a couple of packs of Marlboros every day. and. You know, I always <clears throat> had a chronic cough as a result. Right. Um, the other thing is I was in a relationship, a very troubled relationship that I'd been in for a couple of years, and I couldn't get out of it because I literally didn't have enough money to move to a different apartment or rent anything different. At the time, I was also working as a teacher at a school for delinquent boys where I was sort of half a teacher and half a, uh, what we would say, a wrangler, you know, like herding cattle around. They were, they were very tough customers. They were, they were kids who had broken the law and had been, had been sent away to a sort of a halfway between a, a jail and a school. And so um, there I was, having created a lot of unhappiness in my life. And I went out one day for a walk after I'd had a big argument with my Uh, then mate Linda, and it was a snowy day in New Hampshire, the day after a big snow, and there was snow on the ground, and it was covering a place where there was ice on the road, and I stepped on it, and my feet shot out from under me, and I went, whoop, down on my back. I hit my head. I didn't knock myself out, but I actually saw stars. You know, it it, it was a real shocker to me, and for about two minutes, I had an experience that really changed my life. For about two minutes, it was like I could see down through all of the layers of myself that I'd never seen before. I could see why I was fat. You know, I could see that layer of fat and I could see that the fat was there to protect me from all of these feelings that I had inside that I didn't know how to deal with. Things like anger and sadness and fear. But underneath everything, what really changed my life 
was I could see and feel that there was this space, this huge open space I call pure consciousness that's there in the background. And I had never even known about that. I hadn't realized it was there. And it's in everybody. It's not just in me, of course, but it's a human birthright that we have this pure consciousness. And unfortunately, that gets obscured by life situations that we don't know how to deal with and situations where we get programmed to be less than ourselves of who we really are. So we get into a lot of programming and forget that we have this pure consciousness inside that needs to be nurtured and brought forth. And so I had this experience of it in this two-minute period, and then I began to kind of come back to my ordinary senses. I, oh, I'm laying on the ground. I'm shivering. It's cold. Oh, God, I want a cigarette. Oh, gosh, I've got to walk back home and get back into that apartment that I hate going into. So it was like my personality came back in around me again. But I had that little snapshot of pure consciousness. And so I made this commitment that I think changed my life. And the commitment was, I'm, go I'm going to do everything I possibly can to reveal that pure consciousness so it lives in every cell of my body and that I'm using it all the time to be my true self. And so over the next year, I kept making decisions that favored my pure consciousness. Like I stopped eating everything I'd been eating before. I only ate foods that I'd never eaten before. So I ate all these fruits and vegetables that I'd never tasted. And I ate different kinds of, um, I still ate some meats and things, but I ate ones that I'd never eaten before. But I mostly lived on fruits and vegetables for the course of a year. And I lost 100 pounds and have kept it off for many years. Now I'm, you know, 50 years later, I'm still a healthy weight. I'm about a six footer. I don't know what that is in uh, centimeters, 183 centimeters, maybe something that sound about mm. right. Yeah. Um, and um, about 180 pounds. And so I have completely created my life out of a certain kind of intention. And that led me to realize that everybody has the power to do that, that we can always reinvent ourselves. And what gets in our way is what in the big leap I call upper limit problems. And here's one of them. A lot of people believe down deep inside that they're fundamentally flawed or wrong for some reason. They don't feel good about their childhood, or they don't feel good about their weight, or they think they're the wrong gender, or they think they're the wrong skin color, or the wrong height, or you know, something's wrong. And so everybody's got a different version of that, but a lot of people think they're fundamentally wrong or flawed in a way and that prevents them from going all the way to their full genius. I always say these are false crimes we've been com convicted of in childhood because there is nobody that's fundamentally flawed. There is no fundamental flaw. A flaw is just what some people accuse you of or find you lacking in. And that's their opinion, though. So you have to get out from under everybody else's opinion. And now 
come to love and appreciate yourself for who you are and bring forth that genius that I know you are that's down there waiting for you to kind of breathe on it and invite it forth. Is this feeling fundamentally flawed? Is this the same as self-criticizing or uh, imposter syndrome, for example? That can be part of it. Yes, indeed. Uh, there are a couple of other elements, though. A lot of people not only feel fundamentally flawed, they don't feel like they have permission to really let their light shine. They have a fear of outshining other people. That's what I call it in the big leap. Like, um, I grew up in a family where my older brother, there's only two of us, but my older brother was eight years older. And he was good at everything. He was the golden boy. He looked great. He was thin. I, I for some reason, got born with some kind of glandular disorder that I became the only fat person in a family where everybody else was skinny. And so I, I was taken around to different medical specialists, specialists and try to figure out my problem. But it never really got handled until that day that I took charge of it in 1969. And then I said, okay. I've been to every medical doctor. Nobody knows how to cure my weight problem. I'm going to do it myself. And so I just took responsibility for creating the result I wanted and did everything I could think of to make that happen. So I know no matter how stuck you are, you always have the power to reinvent a new version of yourself. And yes, the imposter syndrome. I want to say more about that too, uh, Inka, because the... Um, the real issue is that underneath all of our upper limit problems are specific fears, like that fear of outshining other people so we keep ourselves tucked inside, or the fear of really owning your genius because you feel like you don't deserve the good things of life. You feel you're fundamentally flawed in a way that you don't deserve the good things of life. And I say, nobody needs to suffer from that because all of us are here on planet Earth and we all have the same capabilities. Let's just make the best of wherever we happen to be. Uh, you live in a part of the world uh, where uh, it's cold a lot of the time. Uh, I live in a part of the world where it's warm a lot of the time. Neither one of them is better or worse. If you're a skier, you like it cold. You know, you want to be up there in the snow and here, Right now, it's raining where I am in the snow areas, though, are getting hit with huge snow. And I, I can almost see the grins on the face of some of my ski buddies up there, you know, that they're uh, loving this fresh snowpack. But um, everybody's comes with different skills and capabilities. And our job is to start asking ourselves these big questions about, hmm, of all the things I do, what is it I most love to do? Like, for example, I ask this question of people like in corporations. Let's say I've got a room full of 150 executives from Motorola Corporation or something like that, because this is sometimes I do this. So I'll ask them, all of you have jobs. You're all working here. But think of your whole day. How much of your day are you spending doing what you most love to do about your job. You know, like, for example, I remember this one guy who stuck up his hand. He was probably maybe 55 years old. He'd been working there for a long time. And he said, you know, the thing I love to do 
is just sit down and have a mentoring conversation with somebody maybe who's in their 30s, who's just starting here. But I don't get to do that because I'm so busy with budgets and meetings and details and things like that. He says, I probably get to do that once a month for 20 minutes at the most. Well, there is something very interesting, isn't it? Because the more successful he's gotten, the less time he has to do the thing he most loves to do. And that's true of what I call the excellence zone. That's how you know you're in your excellence zone, is you're, you're doing good, you're doing well, people like it, you're making money, you're getting promoted, and there's a part of you that isn't being brought forth. There's a part of you that isn't being allowed to surface, and that's that genius part of you. So one of the biggest, toughest transitions for anybody to make is to transition out of your excellence zone, where you're doing stuff you're good at and usually better at than most people, and letting go of some of those things to jump into your genius zone. Now, you don't need to do this all the time. I say start with 10 minutes. Put 10 minutes into your calendar if it's not there and honor that impeccably over the next month. Show up for that 10 minutes. If all you do is sit there and go, hmm, what is my genius? And maybe sketch it out on a pad. If that's all you do for 10 minutes, good on you. I mentored a guy this past year. I have a mentoring program here where I work with four um, young entrepreneurs a year, usually people in their 30s or 40s who have got a business going, but they want to take it to another level. And one of my people this past year wanted to write a book. He created two successful businesses by the age of 42, and he wanted to write a book about it. But he was so busy running the businesses that he only had 20 minutes a day that he could budget to writing his book. But he was so scrupulous about honoring that 20 minutes. He put it in his calendar and he just showed up for it day after day. And he wrote an entire 240 page book in 20 minutes a day. As a wow. writer, I was blown away. You mentioned I'd written 40 some books. I was just blown away because could I have written a 240 page book in 20 minutes a day? I don't think so. You know, it usually takes me a year of sitting on my behind typing away to write a book, but, um, or six months anyway. So you don't have to take a lot of time to do this is the point I'm making. Um, start with 10 minutes, start with 20 minutes if you feel bold, but scrupulous, scrupulously pay attention to that and get very relentless and rigorous about honoring your genius. Because, you know, if you wake up in the morning, you honor your custom of brushing your teeth, probably. You do that because you're invested in your health and you want your mouth to taste good and look good and everything like that. I say genius is just like that. Unless you get your genius out every day and play with it a little bit and honor it and express it, it's like not brushing your teeth for a month. You know, it, it fills up on you. And I think that we can do ourselves so much good, even for our health, by dedicating some time every day to our genius, that if we're not doing that, we're kind of not doing ourselves a big favor. It's like not eating every day or yeah 
Yeah, or eating the wrong kind of food. You know, like I used to live right. up until I was 22. I literally ate every day for lunch, usually a cheeseburger, French fries, a vanilla milkshake. You know, I can't even believe it because most of those things I couldn't even get near me today. <laughs> but that was my that was my diet. And, you know, it was tough to do that for a year because I would have relapses. Like after about a month, I'd lost 35 pounds. You know, you mentioned the upper limit problem. This is my first mm. big upper limit problem. I lost 35 pounds the first month and I was feeling so good. And I was walking down the street, you know, just boom, 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 walking down the street. And I looked over to my left and I saw through the window a family eating this gigantic ice cream Sunday with bananas on it and everything like that. And it was a family of four and they were just wolfing this thing down. And I, it was like I went into a trance. I'd been on this pure diet for a month and I just ran into the place and I ordered one of those all for myself. <laughs> and I sat down and I just plowed my way through a lot of it. And for about 20 minutes, I felt just fabulous. You know, it was like all that sugar was pouring through me. But then I got the worst stomach ache I'd ever had in my life. I just, I remember just doubling over on the street, grip, gripping my belly because I was having this huge stomach ache. And I, that made a huge impression on me. Hmm. I was feeling good. I went unconscious and I made myself feel bad. Why would I do that? Hmm, I wonder if I have some kind of upper limit on my ability to feel good. I don't deserve to feel good. And that's what got me into realizing, oh, I realize I have this fundamental flaw. How could I feel good? Because immediately if I do, I start making myself feel bad in a way. So that was the very first little touch of realizing the upper limit problem had a grip on me. So that's like self-sabotaging. Yes, very much like self-sabotage. You, you break through to a new feeling good, and then you don't feel like you deserve it, and you sabotage yourself. And that can be not just with food. That can be like with worry thoughts. That's probably the number one upper limit thing. You, you're feeling good, and then you say, oh, my God, what about dot, dot, dot? Oh, no, what about dot, dot, dot? And always notice. Those thoughts that sabotage you are always about things that you can't do anything about, that you don't have any control over, that you aren't able to change in any way. So just notice how many of your thoughts are about things that you couldn't possibly change in a million years. And that's our unconscious upper limit problem. The unconscious does that because it knows it can immediately bring ourselves back down if it thinks we're feeling too good. But I'm here to say, put your unconscious in your past. Feel good in the present. Extend the amount of time you spend enjoying natural good feeling. I'm not talking about the good feeling you get from having a puff of weed or a beer or something like that. I'm talking about your natural organic ability to feel good. And sometimes that makes you uh, want to give up the alcohol or the weed or the uh, unhealthy food, but that's your business. I know that's how it worked for me, but I didn't, I didn't ever succeed at a diet really until after I had that experience of realizing 
who I was down inside, who I was that was that pure consciousness. That's how I wanted to be in the world. That's how I wanted, I wanted to feel at every moment. Now, here it is 50 some years later, I'm still feeling that way. So uh, I know it worked in one case. Do, do you think that these um, upper self-sabotages that we do, because people don't sabotage the same way. Some people have the problem of always getting into bad relationships. Some people have the problem of always overeating. Do you think this is something that we take as our identity and we it's hard for us to let go? Or why, why is it that we always bounce back to the same self-sabotage patterns? The reason, Inka, is that these are programmed early in your life before you could think for yourself. And a lot of our early programming about you're fundamentally flawed comes from before you could even think for yourself because many of us get branded as soon as we appear in the world as someone who is not fundamentally wanted. Okay, and the statistics are that about 60 some percent of us are unwanted from the moment of our first appearance. Later on, adjustments may be made that get the person or persons wanting us again. But the first reaction is often a negative one. And so- What do you, what do you mean by we are unwanted in the first moments? Uh, you wake up one day and you realize you're pregnant and you got pregnant by getting drunk at a party a couple of weeks ago mm -hmm. and having drunken sex with some guy you just met 10 minutes before. And you don't want to be pregnant at that moment. That's what I mean by not being wanted. Okay. Mm. Yeah. And it can occur later too. I have film of a birth in which the moment the father saw that it was a boy, his reaction was, oh no. And then he immediately caught himself and said, oh wow. You know, but his first reaction was, this was not what I wanted. And later on, of course, through good nurturing and things, most of us, overcome things like that. But we can't help but a lot of us feel that sense of, I'm I'm not wanted here. I'm the wrong person for the job. I don't deserve to be here right now. So that's one of the most fundamental things that can get programmed into us at a very early age. Mm -hmm. So if we are, if we are thinking this way and we keep self-sabotaging because we feel flawed, how do we spot it? How do you know that this is a behavior that's actually, I'm eating this ice cream. I'm not actually getting pleasure. I'm not eating this because I deserve a relaxation break, but I'm eating the self-sabotage. So my question is, how do you spot self-sabotaging or upper limiting and how do you stop it? I'll give you one very practical way to spot it. Anything you've done three or more times that has an unpleasant after effect. Like, for example, when I gorged myself on that Sunday, it had an immediate after effect. I felt terrible. Most upper limit problems are not that severe. But notice, if you've worried about something or somebody three or more times and haven't done anything about it or haven't thought of anything you could do about it, that's not a creative thought. That's just your way of bringing yourself down and making yourself unhappy. So notice anything that's repeated three or more times. 
that's one particular thing. A second thing is upper limit problems are always caused by fear. So anytime you're running an upper limit problem, you're also scared. And the moment you suspect you're in an upper limit, check for the presence of fear down in your belly, because it will almost always give you an insight into what really needs to be done. So now we get into what can you do about it. The moment you spot the upper limit problem, go down and feel the fear, honor the fear, accept the fear that's underneath it, learn from the fear. What you don't want to do is shut out the fear or try to make it go away. It's got a message for you. So open up to it, feel it, talk about it with people, talk about what you're scared about. The reason that's so important is because pure consciousness is just on the other side of accepting all those old feelings. So if you're not accepting them, you're holding out not only the fear, but you're holding out that pure consciousness that's everywhere if we can stop being stopped by the fear. So the moment around here we say fear is excitement without the breath. The moment you can begin to breathe again, to take a nice, big, easy breath, you begin to chase that fear away. You begin to turn it into excitement. Interestingly enough, science tells us that it only takes three deep, easy breaths to begin to turn down the stress chemistry in your bloodstream. So breathing is one of the fastest ways to make yourself feel good again. But it has to be a special kind of slow, easy breath. And the best way to think of it is it needs each breath needs to take 10 seconds for the round trip. So five seconds in, five seconds out. That's a 10 second round trip breath. It takes three of those to begin to drop the stress chemistry out of your body. That's a very useful practical thing, thing to know because next time you find yourself out of sorts or you know, having one of those bad days or something like that, then all you need to do is remember, take those three easy 10-second breaths and I'm pointing myself back in the right direction again. So that's probably the most practical advice I can give you about what you can do with your uh, upper limits the moment. Go from the upper limit Find the fear, breathe with the fear, accept the fear, open up to the pure consciousness behind it. And then you prevent the behavior. Yes. Perfect. Let's say that you have, you have now taken this um, astral-life mission that I'm going to work on getting into my genius zone, but you don't know what's your zone of genius so I talked, um, I was raving about your book to my brother. Like, this is an amazing book. You need to read it. Uh, most of us, us live in the zone of excellence and we need to go to the zone of genius and we need to take the big leap. And he asked me, how do I know what's my zone of genius? So how do you know this? There are several ways to tell. One way to tell, I mentioned, look for what I most love to do. And it's often something that you love to do in childhood, too. Like, for example, um, the story I tell in The Big Leap is I got a tricycle. Uh, I think I was five years old. Yeah, four or five, five. And um, 
it was raining that day, and so my grandmother let me ride my tricycle in her living room. And the first thing I did was I got my granddad to help me move a cardboard box into the corner of my grandmother's living room. And I commuted to my box, and I would get into my box, and I would sit there, and people were supposed to come and tell me their problems. Now, I lived in a little tiny town in Florida, 10,000 people. There was no psychiatrist or psychologist or social worker or anything like that there. <laughs> and this was even before there were things like counselors in the schools. How would I have known that? You know, there's something inside there, just like there's something inside you and everyone else that's trying to tell us, here's the sweet spot of your life. Now, other people, like I had a kid down the block, I never saw him without his fishing rod because he was always walking past my house to go fishing in the lake. Part of Florida I lived in was famous for its bass fishing. And I don't like fishing at all. The idea of spending four hours on a boat with a stick in my hand, I'd rather <laughs> jump in the water and scuba or something. But um, as a grown-up, he operates this large fishing resort down in Florida. So each of us has within us something that we just absolutely love to do. And for me, anytime I can be sitting around with five people or if I'm on Oprah, 10 million people, if I can be talking to a group of people who are interested in learning more about life and relationships and making big leaps in their lives, that's what makes me happiest. That's what I do all day long. That's what I crafted my life. It took me 20 years to get my life refined down to the point where I was only doing what I most love to do. But by about 1998 or 99, I had gotten to that kind of 99% level, I don't ever like to say 100, but 99% level of doing only things that I love to do and doing things that make my biggest contribution. So for the last, uh, gosh, 25 years now, I've had the pleasure of waking up every day knowing that what I was going to be doing all day was what I'm uniquely suited to do, what I would do all day long, even if nobody was paying me for it you know, if I had some other way to pay my rent and stuff. So that's a good way to tell when you're in your genius zone. What do you love to do? What do you like to do so much that you lose track of time? What do you love to do that it doesn't take a lot of it to make you feel nurtured? So even if you do it for 10 minutes or 20 minutes, you feel satisfied. You know, like one of my yoga teacher friends, she has three kids and, you know, young kids. And she says, if I can give myself one hour a day, I can give back 23 to my family and my practice and my students. She said, but if I don't take that day, hour for myself, I don't give back anything. I just don't feel like I've got it. I feel like I'm depleting myself through my actions. So we've got to learn how to take that little nurturing in-breath of touching in with our deepest selves, our creative selves, our, our true essence. And I've created my life. It took me a lot of work to do it, but I created my life. So that's what I get to do all day long. That's how I know that anybody can do it, because if you just put in the amount of time you need to do it, yours won't take you 20 years because now 
you have the big leap to guide you. You can just do the big leap. And oh, by the way, let me put in a plug for my new book, which will be out next year, which has as a day book, which is uh, 365 days of big leaps. And uh, so something you can do every day. So uh, look forward to that next year. Definitely. Uh, I'm very much looking forward to that book. And I just wanted to thank you. This has been very, again, transforming, mind-altering. I'm sure many people find in inspiration of this one. And I highly, highly recommend to really get um, into your literature, your books. They are all very insightful and very uh, transforming. And um, where can people find you if they want to learn more about you? Yes, uh, the best place is uh, Hendrix.com, H-E-N-D-R-I-C-K-S.com. Another good place to go is our foundation, our nonprofit foundation, because it has a lot of free resources there if you want to get to know our work really well. Uh, that's the foundation for ConsciousLiving.com. Thank you for listening. I'd love to hear what questions and ideas you got from today's episode, so leave a comment on YouTube and let me know about you. If you liked this episode, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcast. This also helps with podcast ranking and visibility. If you know someone who might benefit from listening to today's episode, consider sharing it with them and spreading health. Looking forward to having you around next time as well. Subscribe to get notified on the next episode. See you next time at the same place. Have a great rest of the week.